where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. I'll be the first to admit that I love a little bit of Roundup in my life. Roundup in my life. Here now is your host. He is quite a character. His name is Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jeff. Jeff Eager. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the Oregon Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Eager. Happy to join you today. It is Thursday afternoon, early afternoon, December 8th. Perhaps you will be listening to this on Friday. We'll see what when I actually get it out. A few housekeeping matters. It's great if you're able to subscribe to the Oregon Roundup podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. You subscribing to it there. I know you get this in your email box if you are a subscriber to the Oregon Roundup newsletter on Substack. But if you also subscribe to it, one of the podcast platforms, that means it just gets automatically added to your feed on that platform. It also helps other people from outside the Oregon Roundup subscriber universe to find out about the podcast and get to listen to some of the fun stuff that you get to listen to here. If you have any logistical issues, like one guy emailed me after last week's episode to say that it wasn't on the Google Podcast platform, which I thought it was, and I think I've gotten it on there now, but I'm kind of feeling my way through this. So if you run into any issues at all, please let me know. Also, for paid subscribers to the Oregon Roundup on Substack, we have a new Facebook paid subscriber only group that you can get on if you are a paid subscriber. Just email me at jeff at eagerlawpc.com and I'll get you hooked up with that group. If you are not yet a paid subscriber but would like to become one and get access to the paid subscriber only private, unsearchable Facebook group, go to oregonroundup.substack.com and you can subscribe there. We're having some fun conversations about a number of different issues right now on the Facebook page or group, rather. I think you'd enjoy it if you get a moment to get on there. Let's get down to business. Today, we are going to talk about a number of things. First is some budget problems that Oregon is facing in the coming year that are maybe the most predictable budget problems you could imagine. We'll do a little update on ballot measure 114, which is the Oregon ballot measure that narrowly passed last month that would criminalize large capacity magazines for firearms and also requires people who want to buy a firearm in the state of Oregon to get a permit issued by local law enforcement. We've had some kind of confusing and to a degree conflicting judicial rulings on that measure since I posted the newsletter about it earlier this week, and I'll bring you up to speed there. I want to talk about Herschel Walker losing in Georgia so that Democrats will have a one-seat majority in the U.S. Senate. Story about the decline of working men, so working-age men are not working nearly as much now as they used to and why that may or may not be the case. And then in our ongoing series on Portland stories, I was calling this Tales from the Apocalypse, I think, but not all the stories are quite apocalyptic, so I'm just going to call them stories from Portland. For now, we have Ted Wheeler, of course, the mayor of Portland, cruelly forcing city employees to come to the office at least sometimes. 
So that's the run of show for today. Let's start off with this budget story. So this is something that I've written about occasionally in recent months, and that is that Oregon, like many states, has had a strong budget surplus during the pandemic. This is in part because of direct federal aid to help bolster state coffers, a lot of extra school funding, and some other sources that were kind of pandemic-related or allegedly pandemic-related. And also, Oregon gets most of its state revenue from state income taxes, and the feds were, of course, shoveling money out the door to taxpayers when they weren't working or when they were working. So there's been, you know, incomes have remained relatively high during the pandemic, despite business closures. So all of those things meant that the state of Oregon was in pretty good financial shape during the pandemic. But all of that stuff is coming to an end now. The trough, the federal trough is running dry, relatively speaking, to what it had been during the pandemic. And there doesn't look to be significant aid coming down the road. So the, so Oregon basically has to ratchet back to more of a normal budgeting cycle where it has to rely on its own revenues. And that with what state economists are predicting will be a mild to serious recession next year means that the newly elected governor of Oregon, Tina Kotek, and the new legislature in both houses of the legislature will have to deal with some, some budget problems. Now, state budget analysts project that lawmakers could set aside $350 million next year to cover two years of pay raises that Kotech will negotiate with public employee unions, according to a legislative budget document released Tuesday. That would be a 60.5% increase in the set-aside for state worker compensation hikes compared with the $218 million budgeted for raises in 2021-2023. Quote, The amount was increased to reflect the current inflationary environment and additional positions added in the current biennium, Legislative Fiscal Officer Amanda Bytel told the Oregonian Oregon Live by email. Overall, Oregon's Legislative Fiscal Office calculated that it would cost $30.7 billion in state general fund and lottery revenues to simply maintain the current level of programs and services for another two years. That's a 28% increase from just four years ago when the 2019-2021 state budget was $23.9 billion. So what you have going on here is that these one-time sources of funds are evaporating and merely to maintain the same level of service in the next biennium is going to cost $30.7 billion, whereas it only cost $23.9 billion in the most recent biennium. So just the cost of maintaining service levels where they are right now is nearly a 33% higher in this biennium than the previous biennium. Plus, on top of that, you have pay increases that have already been approved and pay increases that will be approved for state employees that will jack that number up even higher. If you wondered why public employee unions give so much money to Democratic candidates in the state of Oregon, including and especially Tina Kotek, it is so that they can get paid, so that they can get paid more. And you can notice from the portion of the article I just read that it's assumed that Tina Kotek is going to shovel money into the pockets of state employees, even as the economy in Oregon is expected to dip next year. This is completely expected. This is the cost of doing business in Oregon. This is the cost of electing Democrats in the state of Oregon. 
and it was as predictable as anything else in politics in this state. The other shoe to drop, of course, will be that even the amount of money that the state has, which is a lot, is going to be deemed not enough by the Democrats who run the legislature and by Tuna Kotek herself. Almost certainly, you will see them propose new tax revenue this next year during the 2023 legislative cycle with the threat that if that new funding is not approved, that school children will go without learning and old people will be dying in the streets of Oregon. Guaranteed, that is what's going to happen. Fortunately for those of us who don't want to see people in Oregon paying more taxes, the Republicans no longer in the su- are in the super minority in the House and the Senate and therefore have some parliamentary ability to hold up those kinds of tax increases on the floor of the House and the Senate. But look forward to, in 2023, a lot of, a lot of budget talk from coming out of Salem. And just remember that it costs nearly 33 percent more to provide the same level of services in this biennium as the previous biennium. That is completely unsustainable. It would be unsustainable for my business, your business, our families to have just the cost of living increase by 33% without getting anything more out of that expenditure. But that's what the state of Oregon is doing. And you can be sure that Tina Kotek and her allies in the legislature will want to keep that gravy train rolling by securing new funding sources in 2023. So moving on... Ballot Measure 114. So wrote a piece, as you probably saw earlier this week, on Ballot Measure 114, and that piece focused on the fact that billionaires from outside the state of Oregon had financed that ballot measure, which narrowly passed, restricting gun rights in Oregon, much the same as out-of-state billionaires financed Ballot Measure 110 a couple years ago that decriminalized hard drugs. And Measure 114 is a mess, much as Measure 110 has been a mess, but a little bit different type. So Measure 114, the two main components of it are that high-capacity magazines or so-called high-capacity magazines, that is, magazines containing 10 or more bullets, shells, are banned in the state of Oregon. And the other part of it is that if you want to buy a firearm in the state of Oregon, you have to get a permit from your local sheriff or your local police department. Most of the problems with, I mean, from a policy and constitutional standpoint, there are objections to the magazine size, but in terms of the implementation of the law, most of the problems have arisen with the permitting because it it turns out that the police departments and the sheriff departments around the state have no ability to actually issue those permits. They're having a hard time attracting staff to do the normal public safety stuff that they're supposed to do to keep our communities safe. And now this ballot measure has foisted upon them a $30 million estimated statewide obligation to process a bunch of permits every time someone buys a firearm in the state of Oregon. The Oregon Department of Justice said last week in a hearing before a federal judge that, yeah, we'll be fine. We can process these things. And then Sunday night, sent a letter to that same judge saying, whoops, no, actually, we will be in no position to process any permits when the law is supposed to take effect today, Thursday. That federal judge, and this gets into some of the more complicated kind of legal situation, that federal judge paused implementation of Measure 114 as it pertains only to the permitting portion for 30 days, 30 days from now, unless something changes, that part of the law can go into effect under this federal court ruling. She allowed the magazine 
limit size limit to go into effect today. However, none of that actually is going into effect because a state court judge located in Harney County, Oregon, home of Burns and Hines, issued a ruling that stayed implementation of all of Measure 114 pending a hearing next week. What the judge in Harney County issued is called a temporary restraining order, something that a plaintiff, when they go into court, can ask for immediate relief for a short period of time if they demonstrate to the judge that they are very likely to win on the merits of the case and they're trying to preserve the status quo. And obviously that judge in Harney County sided with the plaintiffs in that case and has stayed the implementation of the law pending additional hearings next week on what's called a preliminary injunction, which is kind of like a temporary restraining order, but it can last longer and there's more of a hearing process to get it. So Measure 114 is stayed. It's not going into effect today as previously intended. And we'll see what happens in Harney County and elsewhere as this case is litigated next week and going forward. The ultimate constitutional issues with the the new law won't be resolved for, for quite some time. And at courts at a higher level than the Harney County Circuit Court or the U.S. District Court of the District of Oregon in the federal court system. So stay tuned for that, but definitely a lot of late-breaking legal changes with that case, and that'll probably continue to be the case for for some time. Herschel Walker, the Republican, loses the governor's race, pardon me, the Senate race in Georgia to Raphael Warnock, who was the incumbent Democrat. The way elections work in Georgia is the top two vote-getters from the November election move on to a runoff, assuming neither of them gets at least 50% in November. Uh, That was the case this time, and Raphael Warnock beat Herschel Walker by a few percentage points, a little bit better than he was ahead of him in the November election. What that means is that there will be 51 Democrats in the U.S. Senate starting in January and 49 Republicans. This is actually a improvement for the Democrats by one seat for the last two years. Democrats and Republicans have been split 50-50 in the Senate, which requires Vice President Kamala Harris to break a tie in favor of the Democrats in that body. So with one additional seat, that will no longer be necessary in many cases, and it will probably have the biggest effect on judicial, or pardon me, judicial and other appointments from the the Biden administration, because they, they don't need to necessarily keep all of their members on board for some of the more extreme appointments. They can afford to lose one Democrat vote and still get over the finish line via Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote. So kind of caps off what has been, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, kind of a disappointing election cycle for Republicans when they had all kinds of structural and historical advantages in the midterms to actually lose ground in the Senate while gaining a narrow majority in the U.S. House. It certainly was an underperformance of where I and others thought they would end up at the end of the day. And we've talked a little bit about why that may have been the case, and we'll talk about that more, but not today. Next up is this story kind of about the social impacts of so many men not working anymore. So the people who keep track of this stuff consider prime working age the ages of 25 to 54. And that's the the age range when most people are working if they're able to work. 
And what's happened over time, especially recently, is that the percentage of men in that range that is working has has plummeted. So back in the 1950s, only one out of every 50 men in the 25 to 54 age bracket was not working. Today, it is one out of nine men in that age bracket is not working. The story that ran in some newspapers originally from Bloomberg yesterday chalks that up kind of hilariously to me based on income inequality that white working class and I guess other racial working class men just are dropping out because they can't make as much money as computer programmers and other people that are doing well. I mean, there was there was income inequality in the 1950s and those men were perfectly happy to work. I think that the more likely culprit here is a combination of the fact that you have unprecedented social security disability coverage that goes to pay people not to work now to a much greater extent than used to be the case. You have a bunch of COVID-related payments and other kind of support payments that are going to people who are not working. You know, federal and state food aid continues to go up year on year, which makes it easier for people to not work. The incentives to work relative to not working have declined as we have made it easier and easier financially for people not to work. And men having been the predominant breadwinners historically in our economy have dropped out of the labor force in in great numbers as it relates to that. Another factor that is playing into this is drug addiction. Opioid addiction in particular has hit young men very hard. I believe it is the number one killer of men in this in that age bracket now nationally. So if you're strung out on fentanyl or another opioid, chances are you're not going to be able to, or interested in holding a job. So I think drug, drug addiction and that crisis is certainly playing into kind of the decline of, of men in the labor market. We still have a very low unemployment rate and you still see a lot of help wanted ads around town. So it's not like employers are not trying to hire people. There's something else going on here that is, like I said, I think a a response to the economic incentives not to work that have been bolstered in recent decades. And then also kind of the social stuff that's going on. Fewer people are forming families and having kids, which is something that incentivizes men to get out and get a job and keep going to work, drug addiction and kind of the breakdown of the family. And all of these other factors that kind of feed into a lack of accountability and a lack of work ethic among some people in that age bracket. That's just a sign of some of the other kind of decline that we're seeing economically and from a productivity standpoint and from a social standpoint in this country. I don't think it really has anything to do or much to do with income inequality. Finally, to wrap things up, this stories from Portland segment, formerly known as Tales from the Apocalypse. You may be aware that for years now, many public employees, state employees, city employees in the state of Oregon have not had to report to work in the office on account of allegedly COVID. COVID has been not an emergency by any rational definition for quite some time, and yet Somehow those rules allowing employees to work from home in relative perpetuity have continued to be in place. Well, Ted Wheeler, who has made a habit in recent months of kind of pushing back against some of the most 
extreme dumb policies in Portland, including on homelessness, now is proposing to the city council that it adopt a rule requiring city employees to actually go to the office at least 50% of the time, that many city employees are none too happy about that because they like not going to the office if they can if they can help it. So the unions representing city workers and city workers themselves have pushed back against prior efforts to require them to go into the office. This, according to the Oregonian, hundreds of city workers separately wrote to Portland leaders this summer to insist that mandatory in-person work was, and I quote, racist, sexist, ableist, and a violation of the <laughs> I can't get through it, and a violation of the city's climate goals, according to documents obtained by Willamette Week. I don't know how requiring city employees to go to the office is racist or sexist. I guess I could see how it would run afoul of the city's climate goals, but that says more about the silliness of the city's climate goals than anything else. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.